Well, good morning. If you're a guest with us, thanks for being here this morning. Um, we're making our way section by section through Paul's letter to the church at Colossae. We can call it Colossians. And uh, this week we're in week number five, and we're going to be looking at verses 8 through 15. You may have noticed that Adam read for us verses 6 and 7 as well. We're going to actually postpone those two verses till next week because those two verses are probably the theme verses of the entire letter. So I want to spend some time diving deep into those two verses because I think it has implications for us as we understand this whole letter together. So next week, we're going to do, Lord willing, verses 6 and 7. This week, we're going to do verses 8 through 15. Let's pray together before we get into this passage of Scripture this morning. Father, we ask that you would be with us in this time together We cannot rightly understand your word, rightly interpret your word, rightly apply your word without the Holy Spirit. So we confess our need for him this morning, and we ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight as we seek to receive the implanted word with meekness, which is able to save our souls. So draw near to us in this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Elizabeth Rundle Charles, commenting on Martin Luther's confrontation of key issues in the 1500s, of which we celebrate the 500th anniversary this year, says the following, It is the truth which is assailed in any age which tests our faithfulness. If I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God except precisely that point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing Christianity. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proven. And to be ready on all the battlefronts besides is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. Francis Schaeffer, just decades ago, wrote the following as he saw battles raging over a number of issues and the culture of that day, wrote the following to us as the church. He says, We as Bible-believing Christians are locked in a battle. This is not a friendly gentleman's discussion. It's a life-and-death conflict between the spiritual hosts of wickedness and those who claim the name of Christ. But do we really believe that we're in a life-and-death battle? Do we really believe that the part we play in the battle has consequences for whether or not men or women will spend eternity in hell, or whether or not those who do live will live in a climate of moral perversion and degradation? Sadly, we must say that very few in the evangelical world have acted as if these things are true. Where is the clear voice speaking to the crucial issues of the day with distinctively biblical Christian answers? With tears, we must say it's not there, and that a large segment of the evangelical world has become seduced by the world and spirit of this age. And more than this, we can expect the future to be a further disaster if the evangelical world does not take a stand for biblical truth and morality in the full spectrum of life. End quote. Strong words, strong words from Martin Luther, strong words from Francis Schaeffer, and we'll see strong words from the Apostle Paul. Because in this particular passage of Scripture, Paul is writing to them 
and encouraging them, in fact, exhorting them, warning them to not be taken captive by the philosophical ideas of their day, but rather to stand fast and to stand firm and to hold on to Jesus Christ. That's what Colossians 2, verses 8 to 15 is all about. And you might ask, why does Paul begin to write this strong warning at this portion of the letter? I mean, up to this point, it's been pretty happy. Been a lot of good news. The gospel's come to this new place in modern-day Turkey. It has been saving people, increasing and growing. It's been gathering people into a church that are now made up of the faithful saints of Christ Jesus new disciples. Paul writes a great prayer for them. He tells them about who Jesus is. He tells them all that Jesus has done for them. He reminds them of what he's been willing to suffer for them. And now he reminds them to not be taken captive by the dominating ideas, ideologies, and philosophies of their day. You remember last week we read in verse 4 of chapter 2, Paul said, I say this, I say this, all about Jesus, all these things I've been talking to you about Jesus, I say all of this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. He knows that there are teachers that are going to come along, other people are going to influence them and tell them, no, this is what you should believe. No, this, I know Paul said that, he says that everywhere. But this is what he means by that, or this is what we think you should believe about that. And so these new Christians are vulnerable. Paul is concerned that they be able to stand firm in Christ, verse 5. And so he writes this warning to them. Because in order to be a faithful pastor, he must not only encourage, he must warn. And so this morning, we're going to see Paul's warning, not just to the church in Colossae, but to the church in in Owensboro. So what I want us to do is look at two points this morning in this verse verse 8 through verse 15 of chapter 2. The two points are the risk and the rescue. So Paul in verse 8 describes the risk that these Colossians are faced with and that we are faced with and the rescue plan, verses 9 through 15, which can also rescue us from being taken captive as well. So let's look first of all at the risk. Paul says it in verse 8. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. That's his risk. That's the risk they're under. That's the vulnerability they're susceptible to. They might be taken captive by the philosophical ideas of their day. Now, Paul doesn't tell us what those are. So we know very little, in fact, of what exactly those philosophical issues are. We know some of them, which we will get to in a couple of weeks as we unpack verses 16 to 23, where Paul lets us in a little bit on what those particular philosophies are all about. But in this verse, he doesn't tell us anything, at least specifically about the content of the risk. He does tell us about its character, though, where it's coming from. And that's very instructive for us as well. We don't necessarily need to know the content of this philosophy, but we do need to know where it's coming from. So we're going to talk about that briefly. But just a quick word up front 
Paul is not anti-philosophy per se. It's not that philosophy as an academic discipline or a course of study is a bad thing in and of itself. The word philosophy just means love of knowledge, love of wisdom. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with pursuing understanding and knowledge. But it does matter in what way you go about that pursuit and what the core convictions are underneath that pursuit and what's driving that pursuit and who you're listening to to get those answers. And that's what Paul's concerned about in verse 8. So let's look at some of the character of this teaching. He says, first of all, it's, a, it's something that can take you captive. Do you see those words? It's something that we talked about being arrested this morning, or de- having death being arrested. This is a different kind of arresting. This is a teaching that can come along and arrest you, take you away from Jesus, take you captive under its spell and under its, in, in its grasp. And Paul says to them, see to it that that doesn't happen. I'm warning you, don't let that happen. You will be tempted to fall prey to this if you don't listen to me, if you don't understand this. So he says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy. Now notice the character of this. He says, by philosophy and empty deceit. Two very important words, empty deceit. So what Paul says this philosophy is, is that it's empty. It does not contain the truth. It's devoid of truth. It's lacking in truth. And it's deceitful. It appears to be true, but it isn't. So be careful, not just that you are taken captive by something that isn't truth, but that even appears to be true. It's empty deceit. And notice he also says that it's according to human tradition. He's talking about the source of this teaching. He's saying, be alert, be aware, see to it that no one takes you captive through this system of deceitful teaching that is rooted in human beings. It is not rooted in God. It's not, it does not have a divine origin. Its source is earthly. Its source is human. It was conceived in the minds of men. Don't get your life from what people say. Don't get your philosophy from the minds of people, Paul says. And that is as true today as it's ever been. Where do most people get their philosophies for life? People. Other people. And Paul is saying, don't do that. That's a form of captivity. That is a form of bondage. That's a form of emptiness. That's a form of deceit. Because it comes from people who are empty, who are deceitful, who are themselves captives to other predominant philosophies of other people. See how the cycle just goes around and around? Captive people telling other captive people, empty people telling other empty people, deceitful people telling other deceitful people how to live. It's all human origin. It's all coming from human tradition. But even behind that is something else taking place. Namely, the influence of the demonic world. Notice what Paul says. He says, according to the elemental spirits of the world. 
Now that phrase, elemental spirits, is debated. It's not an easy phrase to understand. But the reason why I say I think it refers to the demonic world is because in the context, Paul is talking about spiritual forces of evil all throughout this early part of the letter. I just want to show you a couple verses. Look at chapter 2, verse 10, which we'll get to in a few moments. And you have been filled in him who is head over all rule and authority. So Jesus is the head over all rule and authority. What are the other authorities that he's talking about? Spiritual forces of evil. How do I know that? Look at chapter 1, verse 16. For by him all things were created, Jesus, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. That, those phrases in Scripture are referring to the demonic world. Verse 20, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And then even more definitively, you have chapter 2, verse 15, where Paul says he disarmed, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. There's a reference again to the demonic world that Jesus defeated through his death. A more explicit text which underscores this is Galatians chapter 4. If you'll turn there with me, it's a few pages back in your Bible. Galatians chapter 4 verses 8 and 9 where Paul uses this phrase, elemental spirits, and it's clear here that it's referring to the demonic world. Paul says, verse 8, formerly you who did not know God, that's all of us, you were enslaved to those that did, by, na- by nature, are not gods. Remember, we're, before we come to Christ, Jesus made this absolutely clear in the Gospels. Paul makes it absolutely clear in the New Testament. Before we come to Christ, we are slaves of Satan. We are in bondage to the evil one, and we need to be rescued and delivered. Paul already said that in Colossians chapter 1. Remember when he said that through Christ, we have been delivered out of the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. So we've switched kingdoms. We're not under a a demonic kingdom anymore. We're under a righteous kingdom in Christ. Verse 9, Galatians 4. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? So what he's saying there is, okay, you've been rescued out of this, Why would you want to go back to it? You've been delivered out of the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of Jesus. Why would you look back at going back under that reign? Again, it's because the teaching is deceitful. It tricks us into thinking it's real. Now, evidently, Teachers had crept into the church here in Colossae and began trying to persuade the Colossians that they needed something in addition to what they had already received in Christ. They needed something more than what Jesus had already provided for them. And as we'll see next week, or in two weeks actually, some of these things included following a rigid list of rules, observing special days, abstaining from certain foods, keeping certain religious festivals or rituals, and striving for certain spiritual experiences. We're going to talk about those in a couple of weeks. But in addition to the characteristics that Paul's already laid out, that it's, there's a form of captivity out there, it's empty, it's deceitful, it's, not according to human, it's according to human tradition, not according to Christ, how can we spot it? 
How can we see it for what it is? Let me give you four ways you can spot false teaching. All right? Four, these aren't the only ways, but these are four ways. And I, I hope they're memorable because you'll know, you know that there are four parts to math, right? Addition, subtraction, multiplication, division. And all of these four points have to do with those four things. Here's number one. Number one way you can spot false teaching. Adding to God's Word. Adding to God's Word. This is one way you can spot false teaching. They'll say, this book is not sufficient. First of all, it's wrong. People will say that. It's a myth. It's got all kinds of stuff in it that is absolutely horrible. Um, and they bring their mind of human tradition and their captivity and their deceitful, empty understanding, and they apply it to this book, and they say, this book's not right. You need to find something else to live on. So that's one way to add. Just dismiss the whole thing altogether. Another, another way is people will come along and say, this book is fine, but you also need this book to understand this book. So in order to get into this book, you need to have another book, maybe like the Book of Mormon, which will help you understand this book. Because the Bible is inaccurate, or it's incomplete, or something is missing from it, so you need an additional book of teaching that has to be added to what God has revealed in Scripture. So, like Joseph Smith's Book of Mormon, or Mary Baker Eddy's Health and Christian, or Health and Sci Science and Health, Christian Science. And a variation of this characteristic is that the Bible is declared to be accurate and complete. Some people might declare that, but... It can only be properly understood by the interpretations provided by a certain leader or a certain organization, like the Watchtower Association, Jehovah's Witnesses. So they either need another book or they need a definitive interpretation provided by a certain leader. In other words, they're adding to God's Word. And that's how you can spot, that's one way you can spot false teaching. A second way you can spot false teaching, is that they subtract from the person of Jesus. They subtract things from the person of Jesus. Now, brothers and sisters, the identity of Jesus, according to Scripture, was hammered out in the first century. There were all kinds of debates going on, swirling in the first century, about who Jesus was and what he came to do. But these false images of Jesus that people were purporting in those days have resurfaced throughout history again and again and again. Let me give you the four key church councils that hammered out this. I'm going to give you a little bit of church history here, okay? These are the four key councils that, were, that hammered out the doctrine of Christ in the early days. First, the Council of Nicaea. Have you heard of the Nicene Creed? This is where it comes from. I believe in God the Father. All that starts, starts with that. So, You've got the Nicene Creed. This is where it came from, 325 A.D. It was the first Christological church council talking, talking about a specific heresy that was assaulting the person of Christ. Do you know what that heresy was? It was a heresy called Arianism, purported by a man named Arius. And Arians denied that Jesus was God. They denied that he was God, that he was truly deity. They said he's a man but he's not God. He's not the God-man. And they refuted that from Scripture. We've already seen that in the book of Colossians. Jesus is God. 
If you don't believe that, go back and listen to my previous five sermons where we unpack that week after week after week after week. The Bible teaches clearly that Jesus is God. Second council was the Council of Constantinople in 381, and this was the second church council, and it rejected a teaching that had surfaced called Apollinarianism. Now, I know I'm throwing a lot of words out that you all try to explain them very simply. It refuted Apollinarius taught that Jesus wasn't human. So they went to the other extreme. They said, yeah, he's God, he's a spirit being, but he's not a human being. They said, no, he's a man. He pos- they said that he wasn't a human being because he didn't possess a human will. But they said, no, in order to be a human being, you need to possess a human spirit. You need to have a human will. So they were saying, well, he has a body. We know that. I mean, he had a body, but he wasn't a human. He was kind of God, and a God spirit that just had a casing. I said, no, he's fully human. He's a, he's a man. He was born of woman. So that's what the Council of Constantinople refuted and rejected. So we have a denial of his deity at Nicaea. We have a denial of his humanity at Constantinople. Said, well, that pretty much solves it, right? I mean, we got those. No, it's not solved. There's more. Council of Ephesus, 431. This addressed the false teaching of Nestorianism put forward by Nestorius. And this was a denial that Jesus was one person. They said that Jesus was two people. Okay, so, we, so we've, got this, we've got this idea. Okay, so we've, we've confirmed that he's God. We've confirmed that he's man. He's two people then. He's two people. He's one divine person and one human person living inside the same body. That's a false teaching. It's a heresy. Jesus is not two people. He's one person. So the, the, the Council of Ephesus addressed that doctrine that Nestorius was advocating and condemned it as a heresy. By the way, all Christian churches believe this. This is what it means to be a Christian church. Roman, this is something we share in common with our Roman Catholic friends. They all believe this too. Okay? Council of Chalcedon, 451, denounced Eutychianism. And this is the last one. Eutychianism was the denial that Christ had two natures. That he was basically a divine essence. His divine essence was absorbed into his human nature to form a unique essence that was neither divine nor human. And the Council of Chalcedon said, no. He has two natures existing in one person. He's one person, the Lord Jesus Christ, with two natures a divine nature, and a human nature. So out of those four councils came the orthodox understanding that the, Bibli- that the Bible teaches concerning the person of Jesus Christ, that he is fully God, fully man, existing in one person with two natures. That's orthodox Christology. One, fully God, fully man, absolutely divine, absolutely human, with two natures, God and man, existing in one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, a false teaching will come along and try to subtract from that. They'll take his divinity away, they'll take his humanity away, they'll take his two natures away, or they'll take his personhood, one single personhood away. And it resurfaces throughout church history. 
So that's some of the ways that historically people have tried to take away from the person of Christ. And brothers and sisters, people died for this. They died for this. Athanasius paid the price for this. This, you might think, this is just, I mean, these little theological details. No, Athanasius says, this is our salvation we're talking about. If we don't have the correct person, we don't have the right Savior. We have to know Him. If He is not this, He's not our Savior. He can't be a Savior. He can't reconcile God and man. This is not just some small little point of theology that's unimportant. This is our life. This is everything. This is Jesus. Who is He? Number three, multiply something. So we got addition and subtraction. Multiply the requirements for salvation. Multiply them. So, for instance, you've got a couple of formulas you could use here. Let me ask you, which one is the biblical one? I won't ask for a show of hands. Just think about it in your mind. So is, which, which formula, since we're talking math here, which formula is the correct one? Here's the first formula. Faith plus works equals salvation. Or faith equals salvation plus works. Which one is right? Second one. Second one. Now let me explain that. Faith plus works does not equal salvation. Because in that formula, it implies that our works, the things that we do for God, are contributing to whether or not God will save us or not. They are the basis. They are the ground upon which God accepts us or rejects us. And as we've seen in this letter of Paul to the Colossians, that is not the case. We were alienated and then we were reconciled. God reconciled us to himself through the person of Christ by faith in him, apart from any works we did because he reconciled us before we had a chance to do anything other than believe his promise through the gospel. But the second formula, faith equals salvation plus works, is correct. Because it's not faith alone that justifies, well, while it is faith alone that justifies, the faith that justifies is never alone. It is always accompanied by a life of works, a life of good deeds, not that merit salvation for us, but rather authenticate our faith and show that our faith is real. So while works are not the grounds of our salvation or justification, They are the necessary fruit of faith that demonstrates that our faith is real. But what false teaching will come along and say, no, 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 no. There's certain works that you've got to do, and these are the ones, or you're not going to be saved. And Paul's going to talk about those in verses 16 through 23 in a couple of weeks, so we'll get to that then. That's all I'm going to say about that for right now. Number four, and finally, divide their followers' loyalty. Divide loyalty. Here's what I mean. The fourth and final mark of false teaching that you can always tell is it seeks to divide God's people. You should ask the question, does this philosophy divide their followers' loyalties by saying that you can't be loyal to God unless you're loyal to to their group? We don't believe that, by the way. We don't believe we're the only church. 
If we did, we're a cult. We believe we are one expression of the body of Christ that's trying to be faithful to Jesus. But there are lots of other faithful expressions. You don't have to be a Baptist to be a faithful Christian. You can be part of Christ Presbyterian Church right down the road with our brother John Burkett or Owensboro Christian Church, Scott, our brother Scott Kenworthy, or Bellevue Baptist Church, our brother Greg Falls, or Life Community Church with our brother Kenny Rager, or any number of faithful churches in our community. They're all, they're all Christian communities. They're all, we, we might differ with them on secondary or tertiary matters that are unimportant ultimately. They're important to a certain degree, but they're not of ultimate importance. But we're not trying to divide the body of Christ and segment the body of Christ and say, this is who you have to follow if you're going to be a part of the true church. But false teaching will. They'll say, you can't be loyal to God unless you're loyal to our group. And this violates the biblical principle that clearly teaches that Jesus is the only mediator between humanity and God. Not any church, not any human being, Jesus. So in a sense, what happens in these groups is the leader will step between God and his people and saying, I'm the mediator, I'm the Savior, I'm God. And he's a false prophet. And he's under, the, he's under captivity. And he's in league with Satan. And he's trying to lead people astray. We are in a day of charismatic personalities gone haywire, brothers and sisters. There are lots of people who say lots of things. And you, if you're not careful and you're not discerning, you'll be, you'll be, you'll be caught up in them because of the way they talk. And the, the things that, and you'll, you're not even really hearing what they're communicating. You're just like, man, that's powerful. Man, that's good. Not even listening, though, to the content of their teaching. Look, to the law and to the testimony, brothers and sisters, go to the book. Test them by this and, and see if what they are saying is in accord with that book, with the Bible. So my point is, is that we must be diligent, constantly on guard, and ever alert to those deceitful and ultimately destructive philosophies and theologies that to the slightest degree draw us away from reliance on Christ and His all-sufficiency. Any idea or system of thought that would suggest that He is not supreme, that He is not sufficient, that He is not sovereign, and that He is not infinitely and exclusively worthy of our absolute devotion is demonic at its core. So we are after Jesus being supreme, Jesus being sovereign, Jesus being sufficient. We need nothing except Christ and Him crucified. That's all we need. So that is the first point, the risk. See to it that no one takes you captive. Now, the rescue plan. The rescue plan. Paul has four steps, a four-point action plan to be rescued from captivity to human philosophy that does not accord with Christ. And it's in verses 9 through 15. There's four things. First of all, he's going to talk to them specifically about what they already have. Now here, before we get to those four points, let me just say this very quickly. In Paul's concern for these believers... Paul writes to warn them not to buy into this hollow and deceptive way of thinking. And here's what he said. You've already got Jesus, and he's enough. That's his point. That's the point of verses 9 through 15. You've already got Jesus, and he's enough. 
So he wants to remind them about the four things they already have in Jesus that they don't need to be duped and think that they need to look elsewhere for. So here's the first one. You're filled. You're already filled. You're complete. Look at verse 9. For in him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. There's his godness. Jesus is God. The whole fullness of deity, not a part of deity. Everything that is of God dwells in Jesus. And you have been filled in him. Verse 10, who's the head of all rule and authority. So he says, listen, brothers and sisters, you're already in union with the supreme person in the universe. Don't let a human being come along and tell you you need something else. You've already been filled in the one who has all fullness in himself. You're not lacking anything. You're not incomplete because you're in complete union with the complete one. If Jesus is the fullness of God in bodily form and we're united to him, then we're full. We're complete. We're not lacking anything essential to salvation if we're in union with the Savior. So we are in union with the most important person in the universe. We are complete in him. We're not lacking anything. That's his first thing he says. Christ is the one in whom all the fullness of God dwells. By faith, you're attached to him. You don't lack anything if you're attached to the one who is God and man. And that should give us confidence, right? It should give us confidence that, okay, Jesus is the God-man. By faith, I'm in union with him. I have everything I need. Paul gives a second encouragement. He says, you don't need to look elsewhere also because you've been converted. You've been changed by the gospel. And that's evidence that it's true because it changed you. And here's what he says in verses 11 and 12. In him, in Jesus, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Now let me say this up front. This is one of the most difficult verses in the entire letter to interpret. I spent a third of my sermon prep on this verse because it's, so, it's difficult, it's not easy, and I'm going to try to give you a summary right now without going into, because this can easily go the whole time, but I'm going to try to give you the gist of it and, and help us understand it clearly. Okay, so Paul says first that in Christ you were circumcised, talking about, he's speaking metaphorically here, okay? He's not speaking of a literal physical circumcision because he implies it's made without hands. So it's not referring to something that's actually physically done to a person. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. Now, why this circumcision idea? Well, it would have been very familiar in that context. Remember, Jewish people, the Jewish identity marker in the Old Covenant was circumcision. That's how you identified with God's people. And so what Paul is telling them now, because they would have been familiar with that idea, is the way that now you're identified with God's people is not physical circumcision. It's not a circumcision that's made with hands, but it's a circumcision that's performed by Jesus. Something Jesus has done to you. He has cut off something from you. 
he has removed something from you. Just as circumcision is the removal of a part of flesh. So what Paul's telling the Colossians here is that Jesus has cut off something from you. What does he cut off? Look at the next phrase. Circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh. Now, what does that mean? Commentators are divided on it. Some commentators will say the body of flesh that's being referred to is Jesus' body, his death on the cross. So what Paul says here is the the spiritual circumcision that Christ has done to you happened by his death. They they refer to chapter 1, verse 22, where it says he has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death. Same phrase, body of flesh. And that's referring to the cross work of Jesus. I don't think that's the primary point, although that's absolutely true, and it's absolutely proven in other parts of the Bible. So it's not whether or not it's right or not. That's right. It's just whether or not that's what Paul means right here. So both of these interpretations are biblically true, just maybe not textually true, exactly what Paul meant right here. Here's what I think he means by that. I think he means that the body of flesh is referring to our sin nature, the one we're born with, the one that we need to be delivered from, and that it was Christ who put off that body of flesh. He is the one who rescued us from sin's dominion. And the reason why I say this is Colossians 3.10. Look at Colossians 3.10. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. That's the old nature that is being talked about. So the the reason why commentators are divided on that is because Colossians has biblical warrant for both interpretations. you got 122 and 310, so which choice is it? You pick. I don't know. It's hard, but they're both true. They're both absolutely true in other parts of Scripture, but that's what I think it means. Secondly, you have this phrase, by the circumcision of Christ. So in what way was Christ cut off? His death. His death. So what Paul is saying is that you were spiritually changed by Christ's work on the cross, using this circumcision metaphor. Other commentators will say that the crucifixion that's being referred to here, the crucifixion of Christ, is not necessarily his death, but it is his work in us to change us. That, in fact, this circumcision is being performed by Jesus in us, which, of course, is true as well. See what scholars debate about? (laughs) This This really excites some people. It really, I know some of you are like, man, this is just technical. And I promise them we're not going to be technical all the time. This is important, though. It helps us wrestle with Scripture. But you've got to love that guys care about that and that people want to know exactly what God's Word teaches, and we should too. We should dive in and wrestle and struggle and not be ashamed of wrestling through difficult texts when hard texts are in the Bible. So what I think Paul is saying here is that the circumcision is spiritual, And it happened at our conversion through the stripping away of our sinful nature through the death of Jesus on our behalf. And so we've been changed. We've been converted. Then verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, another debate, is this metaphorical or is it literal? Is it referring to spiritual baptism at conversion or is it referring to a literal baptism where we follow Jesus? Again, scholars are debating that too and they divide on that. But I think it's both, because Paul, in Paul's mind, you, you, if you read Scripture and you understand what, the way Paul thinks, he never separates water baptism from spiritual baptism. And I'm going to show you here in Romans 6 in just a minute. 
But what he's talking about here in verses 11 and 12, I'm going to step back, let's sum it all up. Let's get out of the weeds a little bit, come up here. What he's saying is we were changed by Jesus through his death on the the cross where our sin nature was dealt a death blow. That's what he means. That's what he's trying to communicate to them. So he's talking about the whole conversion experience, the whole way we're brought into the kingdom of God, the whole way God changed, what it means to be born again the whole way in which Jesus transforms us and changes us. If you want more on that, read Romans 6, 4 to 6. I don't have time to turn there right now, but you can see Paul explain this again in Romans chapter 6, verses 4 to 6. Two more very quickly, and then we're done. Two more ways. He says, first of all, you're filled. You don't have to look elsewhere. You're complete. Second, you've been changed. You've been converted by the powerful working of God through the work of Jesus Christ. You don't have to look elsewhere. And here's how that happened. Verse 13 through 14, you're alive and you're forgiven. Good news right here, brothers and sisters. And you were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh. There's another reason why I think Paul's referring to sin nature in verse 11. The uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, By canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Brothers and sisters, we can't say it too much. We cannot rejoice in it too much. We cannot sing about it too much. We cannot remind each other of it too much. Through the death of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven of every single one of your sins you have committed or ever will commit. Period. You can never hear it too much. You were dead in your sin your sins were unforgiven, your flesh was uncircumcised, and God made you alive. He raised you from the spiritual death, and he brought you into his kingdom, and in so doing, he forgave your debt through the cross work of Jesus. Your IOU has been paid to God. God has wiped your slate clean. He's taken the sign confession of indebtedness which stood as a perpetual witness against us, and he has canceled it in the death of the cross. On the cross, there would often be, when people were crucified in those days, there would be a record of debt that was nailed to the cross to tell people what they were there for. And you know what Jesus said on his? Your sin, my sin, and all of his people's sin. That's what he was there for. Not his sin, our sin. And through his death, our indebtedness has been paid, been paid, and we are not, and we are no longer in default on our debts to God. They are fully paid. And guess what? You will never, ever be foreclosed on for all eternity. No foreclosure. Debt paid. Salvation belongs to you. Whatever we owed, he paid. Whatever penalty we incurred, he endured. And that's why we sing, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. That's why Christians sing that. Or as another hymn put it, whatever curse was mine, he bore, the wormwood and the gall, there in that lone, mysterious hour, my cup, he drained it all. So we are alive and we're forgiven. And fourthly and finally, we're victorious. We are victorious. Look at chapter 2, verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in in him. In other words, demons have been disarmed, displayed, and defeated. 
through the work of Jesus. Jesus has divested the spiritual forces of their dignity and stripped away their claims to power over us. See, the only claim that Satan could legitimately make before God the Father for why he shouldn't let us into heaven is unforgiven sin. Satan could come and say, God, I thought you were holy. I thought you said you were a perfect God. I thought you said you couldn't dwell with wickedness. I thought you said that you wouldn't even approach those who live in darkness. I thought you said that you removed them and you cast them from your presence. I thought you said that, God. Are you a liar? And God would say to Satan, have you not read the record books? Look, get my accountant out here. Read the book. What, is, what indebtedness is owed to this child of mine that Jesus did not pay? And Satan's mouth is shut. He's got nothing to say. And that's how Jesus disarmed the devil. Took the only bullets he had in his gun out of his gun. He disarmed, he displayed him, he defeated him. The powers of darkness have no claim over us and can pose no threat to those who are in Christ. And according to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we are now being led in triumphal procession behind Jesus in front of the demonic host saying, look at your captives that I stole from you. Jesus, according to 2 Corinthians 2, this is when Satan looks at all that's going on in the demonic realm and sees God's people, he sees people that were taken out of his clutches. And it makes him rage. But we are being led in joyful, triumphant procession behind our new captain, the captain of our salvation. So the point of all this, the, whole, the point of this whole section of Scripture is stick with Jesus. Stick with Jesus. Don't move from him. Don't go away from him. He's not a dead ideology. He's not a philosophy that comes out of human tradition. He's not some sort of just empty, deceitful thing. He is a living, loving, seeking Savior. Don't get bored with Him. Grow in Him. Some of you say, you, you know, maybe you've grown up in the church or you've heard this a lot, you say, Christians, don't you ever talk about anything else? I mean, this is like all you ever talk. No, we don't talk about anything else. Jesus, 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 Jesus. It's all we got. It's all we got. We're five guys, burgers, and fries. Little menu, but it's really, really good. Can you get Sesuan chicken here? No! It's not on the menu. Jesus is on the menu. Jesus coming, Jesus living, Jesus dying, Jesus rising, Jesus conquering sin and death, Jesus coming again to judge. It's all that's on the menu, and it's all you need. Good news is always good no matter how many times you hear it. It's always good. Let's close there. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time together in your word to be reminded of the goodness of our Savior again. We pray that we would never, ever be taken captive by anything else or anyone else because we have everything we need in our all-sufficient, all-conquering, all-saving Jesus. We thank you for sending him we thank you for canceling our debt in him. We thank you for raising us to newness of life in him. That in his death we were buried. That in his tomb we were resurrected. And thank you that coming, when he comes again, we will be raised from the dead. And, we will be, and death will no longer have any dominion over us. For our Jesus has conquered it all. We celebrate him now as we return to you our gifts and our worship. 
And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.